Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Modern Gnostic. I've got something special for you guys today, a break from the normal episodes, or maybe a new chapter to the normal episodes. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you've heard me talk about these ideas I have of what I've been calling esoteric patriotism. And I decided to start getting down and getting to work and trying to really figure out what I mean by that and get my ideas together and make it kind of coherent, explore this with people. And what I decided to do is revisit a book that originally inspired these ideas in me. And this is a little-known book, it seems, from Bishop Stefan Heller called Freedom, Alchemy for a Voluntary Society. This book came out in 1992, and it is a amazing exposition of the hermetic and Rosicrucian and alchemical history and basis of the United States. When I read this book, it was the first glimmerings I had of esoteric patriotism. So what I decided that I wanted to do was make a series of podcasts and videos where we read this book together. And so today on this first installment, we will read the preface and have some discussion about it hope you guys enjoy it. So sit back, relax, prepare to hear the enlightening words of Stefan Heller and some commentary from yours truly. Enjoy. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Modern Gnostic. It's January 20th, 2021, and we are continuing our headlong dive into very, very strange times. I don't know if anybody else watched the inauguration today, but wow, what a strange scene. Uh, Lady Gaga looked like she was going to be announcing the Hunger Games. There were soldiers everywhere, very few people who were not military, police, or somehow involved in the state. Um, if you had the sound turned down, you might not even recognize it as something that was happening in the United States. And indeed, maybe it didn't happen in the United States. Maybe things have changed so much in the last four years that we are not recognizable as the republic we once were. And this is something that I want to investigate in this series of videos. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, You've heard me talk about esoteric patriotism, and this is something that I've been kicking around in my brain for the last two years. I'm finally getting down to the work of writing about it, speaking about it, and trying to get these ideas out there. The basics of esoteric patriotism is attempting first for myself to understand and then to help explain to others the core esoteric roots uh, that not only Western culture, but that the United States are founded on and is a product and a blossoming of. I feel like over the last maybe 10 years, we are getting far, far away from these roots. We are losing contact with the idea of the sovereignty of the individual and the family. We are losing contact with the idea that the purpose of the state is to guarantee the God-given rights of the individual not to serve needs, not to uh, protect uh, from whatever kind of boogeyman they're attempting to scare us from, uh, scare us about. The fundamental purpose of these institutions in our culture are to protect and guard the freedom of the individual. Uh, so the idea behind esoteric patriotism is that the United States was founded on these 
um, deeply esoteric, deeply spiritual ideas, and that these ideas manifest in our culture and our politic. And that if we don't have an understanding and, and a, real, a real gnosis to, a real knowing of the spiritual truths that are expressed in those fine founding ideologies, uh, we're going to get lost. And indeed, I'd say at this point, we are lost. Um, we're heading in, in a very bad direction. We saw an entire summer of political street violence. Uh, more and more, the culture is dividing along these right-left ideologies. Uh, they're fracturing into their armed gangs of Antifa on one hand and Proud Boys and, and other people like that on the other hand, uh, the QAnon people. And then they're coming together in the streets and fighting. They're storming Capitol buildings. They're burning down police stations. Um, they're taking over city blocks and calling them autonomous zones. Stuff is getting nuts, right? Um, but these two, these two factions, this right, extreme right and extreme left, are in a certain way are just mirrors of each other. And they are mirrors of this poisonous collectivist ideology. And it manifests as fascism in one direction and it manifests as communism in the other direction. And ultimately those two nefarious things, horseshoe and meet in a middle of absolute totalitarianism. And I promise you it's not where we wanna go but we are rapidly heading in that direction. And so the project of esoteric patriotism is a, a way to escape from this. Uh, the, the core project of Gnosticism is freedom, right? We talk about this on modern Gnostic all the time. And that freedom is grounded in knowing who and what we really are, where we really come from and where it is that we are going, right? This is the, the saving knowledge of Gnosticism. And so in the esoteric patriotism project, we're examining where we come from as a culture, what that is based and rooted in. And what I decided that perhaps the best way to get into this, or one of the ways to get into this, is to share with everybody one of my favorite books on the subject of esoteric patriotism and the true uh, secret history, um, not secret in that it's been hidden from you, but secret in that we've hidden it from ourselves, uh, the true secret history of our country. And that is the great book, Freedom by Stefan Heller, Freedom, um, Alchemy for a Voluntary Society. Uh, this book is profound. I've, I've, I've read it cover to cover three or four times. I got it a couple of years ago, recommend it to everybody I meet who's interested in these things. And I just think the best way that we can dive into the esoteric patriotism project is by studying this book together. So I suggest, you know, you get online, you get yourself a copy or get your local bookstore to order one, but get a copy. It's not expensive. And we're going to read this together. Um, each episode, I'll read a chapter or two, I'll talk about it a little bit, and then you guys can either reach out to me via email, you can find my personal page on Facebook, or you can find the Modern Gnostic podcast page on Facebook, write in your questions, your thoughts about the episode, and we'll just kind of get this going as a, as a collective study of this profound topic. And so I don't know how much we're going to get through today. My idea was to do the preface and the introduction, and honestly, I've sat down, this is the third time that I've sat down to make this video, um, one thing or other has gone wrong each time I've tried to do it. So I've read this stuff numerous times at this point, um, so I'm not sure how far we're going to get through today, but we're definitely going to get the preface, and we're definitely going to talk about it some, so 
I'm just going to apologize up front. There's some French and Latin in here that I'm going to massacre in the pronunciation, but luckily it always has um, the English translation and that's what will really matter. So just a heads up on that. So we're just going to dive right into the preface of freedom. And it starts with a quote from Nicholas Brediet from his book, The Beginning and the End. The natural world, society, the state, the nation, and the rest are partial, and their claim to totality is an enslaving lie, which is born of the idolatry of men. Preface. A devotee of freedom is made, not born. The offspring of artists, intellectuals, or nobility with bohemian sympathies, as in my case, do not always grow up to be natural libertarians. I came to value freedom because I, along with all my relatives and acquaintances, indeed my entire nation, were subjected to its loss so radically and painfully. Experience is a teacher whose lessons become part of one's character, of one's very being. Such has been the result of experience in my own life. I was not yet 10 when Hitler's odious shadow fell on my native Hungary, and not yet 13 when the Soviet armies, amidst blood, pillage, and rape, forced their brand of tyranny upon my people. Within the first few days of Soviet occupation, my favorite uncle, an aged invalid, was murdered by soldiers of the Red Army. At the same time, my father miraculously escaped the same faith the same fate, after being wounded three times by his would-be executioners. The savagery of Soviet occupation soon was amplified by the oppression visited upon us by the newly installed communist regime. No one who has not personally experienced life in a state of constant terror can comprehend the conditions under which we lived. Daily hunger, lack of heat in winter, buildings severely damaged by bombing all paled when compared to the treatment accorded to the populace by its new rulers. I shall never forget the cold winter morning in 1946, when upon returning to our temporary home in the hills of Buda, I encountered two small neighborhood children wandering bewildered on the street and learned that their parents had been taken away by the secret police, leaving the children orphaned and destitute. Incidents of this sort were a daily occurrence. My father, one of the always considerable number of Anglophile Hungarian noblemen, spent several years of his early life in England and was thus a confirmed opponent of Hitler's Germany and a partisan of Britain and America. His sentiments were shared by virtually all of my relatives and friends. Needless to say, the disappointment of all of us with the inability of the Western allies to save us from the clutches of Stalin into which the treaties of Yalta and Postdam delivered us was great. Opponents of Nazism, unless they were communists, were treated as enemies by the new, quote, people's democracy, unquote. My maternal aunt was first imprisoned by the Nazis for harboring Jews on her estate, and later imprisoned and tortured by the communist regime as its potential opponent. In some cases, one generation of a family perished in a Nazi concentration camp, while the second was killed by the Soviet occupation forces or by the communist police. The poet Yeats lamented in the bleak years of the 30s that, quote, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity, unquote. With the descent of the deadly dark cloud of communist tyranny, most of us would have agreed with these words. Still, it was not truly so, 
While the worst were certainly full of passionate intensity, the best were neither lacking all conviction nor were they without the courage to express their convictions. Several heroic figures rose on the horizon. The greatest, Joseph Cardinal Mintzinsti, head of the Roman Catholic Church of Hungary, like the brave shepherd he was, fiercely opposed the wolves devouring his flock. For a few brief months, his voice brought hope to the hopeless, but soon this last and bravest of the resistors was consigned to the dungeons of the secret police, and with him all hope vanished. A few lucky souls fled to freedom, the rest remained and for the most part despaired. During the years I spent under Soviet occupation, I had numerous conversations with soldiers of the Red Army. The soldiers were young, poor, and uninformed. Quite often they would ask earnestly where the poor people lived, for even the most simple hut in a Hungarian village appeared palatial to them. Their commissars had indoctrinated them to believe that people outside the Soviet Union lived in unspeakable poverty, from which only communism could liberate them. Having discovered that they had been deceived, the soldiers often would say that upon their return home, they would take Stalin and his henchmen to task for their lies. Needless to say, such statements were always whispered, lest the ubiquitous secret police, predecessors of the notorious KGB, overhear the conversation. More than once, I observed high-ranking army officers fall silent when a common secret policeman passed by. In spite of their barbarous behavior towards them, of which the very high number of rapes were the most humiliating, many Hungarians regarded their conquerors with a measure of pity. Most came to recognize that the oppressors were oppressed themselves, and that the Russian people had been experiencing a long Calvary to which Hungarians were only now being introduced. After three years under communist rule, I escaped to the West. I was 16 years old and obliged to leave my parents behind. Happily, they joined me in about a year's time. In the years that followed, while residing in Belgium, Austria, and other Western European countries, I often wondered what would have happened had I stayed in Hungary. Descending from a long line of patriots, my mother's ancestor, Count Istvan Szczesinyi, is known in history as the greatest Hungarian patriot ever. I felt a sense of guilt for deserting my country in its need. Still, my prospects in the now entrenched communist society were bleak indeed. As a, quote, class alien, unquote, I would not qualify for higher education and virtually any career of a promising nature would be closed to me for the same reason. Within a year of my departure, most of my friends and relatives, along with tens of thousands of upper and middle class, quote, suspicious persons, unquote, were forcibly deported from the cities and assigned to menial labor in the countryside, a practice employed during the Cultural Revolution in China and in the killing fields of Cambodia. Exile thus appeared the lesser of evils. Western Europe in the late 40s and early 50s was not a land of milk and honey. There were physical hardships aplenty, and these added to the pain of homesickness made life less than pleasant. Still, there was one great boon to be enjoyed, freedom. For the first time in years, free speech, freedom of religion, and freedom of assembly were available. It was at this time that I came face to face with the reality of how precious freedom can be once it has been lost and regained. What did it matter if one lived in cramped refugee quarters, wore shabby clothing, and partook of a limited diet? One was free, and that meant much, perhaps everything. 
Not that the long hand of tyranny did not reach out towards one even under these conditions. The following incident certainly convinced me of that. One day in 1948, I was invited to one of the offices of the Intelligence Service of the United States Occupational Forces in Austria. Speaking through an interpreter, the official in charge informed me that the Hungarian communist government had marked me for kidnapping and forcible return to Hungary. He advised me to exercise great care when associating with strangers, especially my own countrymen. I was to report to his office any suspicious circumstances I might become aware of. Gratefully, I observed all the rules outlined to me by the American gentleman. It is my firm conviction that this warning saved me from a dire fate. To this day, I have a soft spot in my heart for the CIA, now so often attacked, and for its predecessor, the CIC. My freedom in exile could have come to an unpleasant end, but for these clever agents of the U.S. government. There was one place where I felt freedom was firmly established and where both people and their freedoms were far safer than they were in Europe. This place was the United States, or as we called it, America. It is to this country that I came in the early 50s. It was a move I regretted. It was a move I never regretted. Life in the USA was very different then from what it has become at the end of the 20th century. The Cold War had just begun. An increasing number of Americans became aware that far from making the world safe for democracy, World War II had made much of the world vulnerable to the depredations of a tyranny as fearsome as that of Hitler. Yet many naive notions persisted and caused me consternation whenever I was faced with them. Having spent their lives under democratic rule, few Americans had a practical appreciation of the realities of authoritarian government. If the Hungarians don't like the communists, why don't they just vote them out? This was a question I was asked repeatedly. The fact that there was not a single communist government anywhere in the world that had come to power in a free election was totally unknown to these folk. The close similarities between the just vanquished Nazi tyranny and the newly expanding communist power also seemed to elude many. One of the reasons was, no doubt, the natural reluctance to perceive so recent an ally as the Soviet Union as a bloodthirsty enemy. Another was the publicity given to the horrors of Nazi atrocities, especially the Holocaust of the Jewish people, which was in no way balanced by an adequate exposure of the Russian gulag and the many other gulags in the satellite countries. I soon recognized that much education and information were required before the American people would fully understand the predicament in which they found themselves in facing the Red Colossus on the other side of the Atlantic. I'm going to stop right there to make a little comment. This is such an important point. And I've been thinking about this a lot. A lot of people have been thinking about this over the last few years. Uh, why is it, why is it that we so rightfully recognize the horror of uh, the swastika in the way that the Nazis use it, but we don't feel that same gut-wrenching horror when we see the hammer and sickle? Why is it that we would rightfully um, be appalled by a politician getting up and talking about national socialism, right? The economic and political philosophy of the Nazis, the economic and political philosophy that led uh, in the murderous direction that they went, we would be rightfully appalled at that. We would never vote in an American politician who spoke of those things. But we have multiple people 
in some of the highest levels of government right now who openly identify as socialists. Why do we have such a disconnect there? Socialism and communism have led to a body count in the hundreds of millions in the 20th century. And yet people glibly nowadays call themselves socialists. They say it openly. They say it with pride. We should be horrified when we hear that. It should strike us as repulsive. And there's a reason for that. And it's because these collectivist ideologies lead to nothing but tyranny and death. And don't let people fool you and point to somewhere like Denmark or Sweden or Switzerland and say that that's socialism. That is not socialism. There's all kinds of varieties of free market capitalism that you can have. You can have free market capitalism that has a very strong social safety net. And that's what these countries have. Socialism is a different beast altogether. Socialism has to do with the state owning the means of production and a planned economy. And every place in the world that these things have been tried has led to death, starvation, uh, mass imprisonment, surveillance states, totalitarian regimes. And something that Stefan Heller explains throughout this book is how Nazism and communism are really, they're, they're opposite poles, but they're on the same beam, right? And he's pointing out as early here as, as the 1950s, when he first came to America, that people did not recognize the danger of the communist system. And I don't have an answer for why that is. I, I think he points to a good answer here when he says that perhaps it's because we were so, you know, we were close allies in World War II. Uh, perhaps it's because so many of us are the products of an education system where so many of the professors in colleges and teachers in high schools uh, identify with these ideologies, right? Um, like a lot of you probably, I grew up reading people like Howard Zinn who lionized murderers and psychopaths like Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. Uh, so I just wanted to stop there and, and point out that he's, he's making a really good point. And it's something that's, that's really important to the overall project that I'm wanting to work on here is we have to realize um, that the, the real danger, I think, in our culture is a danger of totalitarianism, but it's largely coming from the left. And we can see that now in, in regards to who is in power, who is in ascendancy, um, and, and what we consider socially acceptable. So ideas like socialism have a lot of uh, uh, glitter on them nowadays. But, but the, the keen eye should recognize that these are, these are um, political philosophies and ideologies about, about who and what human beings really are that is, that is actually very murderous and leads inevitably to totalitarianism. So now I pick back up with Stefan Heller. As the years wore on, I became aware of certain deep conflicts and conundrums in the American psyche, which I held to be responsible for many of the attitudes I encountered. As a student of Jungian psychology, I came to see that phenomena such as guilt and projection were uncommonly prevalent in the minds of those with whom I held conversations about such issues as freedom, communism, and the fate of my homeland. 
For example, I discerned that the enslavement and discrimination practiced in this country against the populations of African origin resulted in much free-floating guilt, which in turn made Americans very sensitive to the issues of racial persecution, but far less sensitive to the persecution motivated by class hatred. On the basis of personal experience, I knew that ill treatment and injustice hurt equally, whether the target of such indignities is a Jew, an aristocrat, or a farmer resisting the collectivization of his plot of land. Often, I was shocked by what appeared to be a kind of selective humanitarianism among Americans, but being aware of the psychological dynamics underlying such inconsistencies, I found them easier to bear. This is another key point that I think is, is becoming more and more prevalent in the culture, and it is this, this um, collective uh, racial guilt that, that bubbles up when these, when these things are talked about, and we see it more and more, and it's becoming more and more poisonous in the language of a, of a, 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 a hatred of quote-unquote whiteness or talking about white people as if there is something inherently wrong, inherently bad in a person because they are a man or because especially if they're a white man or a white woman or there's some kind of like white feminism that's really terrible and there's you know white privilege and all of these other, um, again, ultimately murderous ideologies. And they're, they're really rooted in this kind of communist thinking where they're constantly attempting to root out the, the bad people, right? Uh, if you look at the history of communism in Russia, one of the things that led to mass starvation was the persecution of what were called kulaks, which were essentially like successful peasant farmers. And the idea that the communists put forth was the only reason that these people, these farmers were successful and had even a modicum of wealth is because, well, obviously they must be oppressing the poorer people. And so the Soviet system weaponized this class hatred and really pointed it at the kulaks and, and told people they only have stuff because they stole it from you and it's righteous for you to take it back from them. And this led to the, the systematic genocide of the kulaks which in turn led to the starvation of uh, the Ukraine because all the successful farmers were killed, right? Um, and we're not at that level now or we're not even anywhere close it. But what we can see is a, the, the dominant philosophical systems attempting to turn the hatred and anger and feelings of oppression that people have and turn it towards what they're calling now whiteness, right? Or white people. Um, again, these are murderous at their, at, their, at their logical conclusion, these are murderous ideologies. Um, uh, and, the, and they are counter to the American spirit. Uh, the, one of the, the, perhaps the most fundamental um, point in esoteric patriotism or the linchpin of the whole thing is that you are not a race, you are not a class, you're not your job, you're not your tribe, you're none of that. And all of that helps make up who and what you are, but who and what you really are is spirit soul, right? And that doesn't have a skin color and it doesn't have a bank account. It's an eternal being and it's a, it's a, a universal uh, spark. It's in, it's in all of humanity. Perhaps it manifests differently in different places, but it's at the root of mankind. And this is a fundamental principle 
in the Western esoteric tradition. And it's the reason that we end up with statements like, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That amazing statement, that world-shattering historic statement comes from a spiritual tradition that recognizes that who and what we are is this divine spark. So we'll pick back up with Bishop Heller with a French phrase, tout comprises tout pardonner. <laughs> Here it is in English. To understand all is to forgive all. It's a French saying I learned long ago. As my stay in the U.S. lengthened to years and then decades, I was less and less disturbed by the psychological gulf separating me from most Americans. I knew that without experiencing what it means to be deprived of freedoms one has taken for granted, it is exceedingly difficult to understand the predicament of the millions enslaved by political tyrannies. To have faith in someone else's experience is difficult, although there are times when such faith is needed. While growing more philosophical about these issues, I began to be alarmed by others. My concern was and remains that while I came to my country of exile because it was the freest in the world, I found that a diminishment of freedom was setting in. Freedom was waning in the land of the free, and this phenomena was not only passively accepted, but actively promoted by many. My studies in American history disclosed to me that the founders of this nation envisioned it as a hermetic vessel, an alchemical alembic in which the human soul could grow and transform with little or no interference from state, society, or religious establishments. The existing trends indicated to my dismay that interference from just such sources was mounting steadily and that the intentions of the sage statement of old were being increasingly vitiated. Today, unlike in earlier times, the American people seem to look increasingly to government for the satisfaction of their needs and for the remedy to almost all ills that beset them. In turn, in return for the promise of government help, they willingly forego numerous freedoms which they previously considered precious. This process often takes the form of one group of people advocating that the freedom of another group be curtailed. Such as persons outside the business and manufacturing community wishing to restrict profits or special interest groups demanding rights and privileges at the expense of others. Emboldened by the empowerment bestowed upon it by the acquiescence of the people, the government enacts more and more measures which imply the curtailing of freedoms. Laws and ordinances are adopted daily which give little or no consideration to the loss of freedoms of individual citizens. Government and people alike fix their sights on their avowed goals and pay little heed to the freedoms which are trampled as they march towards the goal proceeds. Examples of this curious process appear in several chapters that follow. I began to consider that freedom may not always be lost in the same way. Sometimes it may be forcibly taken from us from the outside, while at other times it may simply erode from within. What I ask, can one do in the face of the later possibility? And I think we're at that moment right now. As I, as I read this chapter, I get chills thinking about the precious freedoms that we have just, we have, we have gladly hand, handed over. Just think about in the name of COVID. 
Just think about what your life is like now versus what it was two years ago. In the name of safety and health, we are letting old people spend their last days alone or seeing their families through, through a screen. We have watched the decimation of small businesses and, and the imploding of the economy all across the country in the name of safety. We've allowed the government to impose curfews on us, to shut our businesses down, to close our schools, to say who we can interact with, how many people we can or cannot have in our home, all for an illusory sense of safety, for a disease that has a 99% survivability rate. And at the same time, I'm, I'm watching as people cheer when the social media platform Parler is taken down by the monopoly giant Amazon, or people cheer when 80,000 people are kicked off of Twitter because of their political speech. People are gladly giving away their freedoms. They're giving, they're giving away their freedoms for nothing, for a false sense of safety, out of the desire that the government is going to come in and save you and help you, that the state is going to come in and save you and help you. I never thought, I, I mean, maybe I was being naive, but I never thought growing up as an American that I would see that happen. It is so counter to the spirit of our American ancestors, to the spirit of rugged individuals, to the spirit of people who would refuse to surrender their freedoms. And that's not to say you should be stupid and you shouldn't take diseases seriously and we can't have community standards and community organizations and smart ways to go about uh, protecting the health of the weakest among us. But I am convinced that we do not get to that goal by curtailing and smashing on our freedoms. And it's happening big time right now in the name of the so-called insurrection that happened on January 6th. You're going to see, for some of you who, who aren't old enough to have lived through 9-11 and to see the backlash that came from that and the Patriot Act and the way that our lives changed and never went back to normal. If you were old enough to have lived through that time and, and been conscious, think about how often you were told about limited measures to protect your safety. And those have become routine aspects of American life. After 9-11, there's unprecedented spying on civilians. There is unprecedented, unprecedented intrusion into your personal data and the mining of information about you and the, the infiltration of political groups and the suppression of minorities and the targeting of religious minorities. And they, they have people with, there's no opposition to it happening again now. We're so easily manipulated. And I think it's because we don't have a rooted, firm understanding of who and what we are and where we come from. We are made of stronger stock than that. So back to Bishop Heller. Casting about for kindred views, I came to note that a thoroughgoing concern for freedom did not seem to exist at any point of the political spectrum. That is dead on. Whichever side you look at right now, right, left, Democrat, or Republican, 
there is no thoroughgoing concern for freedom, none. American liberals and their ideological equivalents in other countries are concerned with the freedom of the individual, but only when such freedom fits in with their favorite fads. The latest ones often summed up under political correctness being multiculturalism, feminism, and environmentalism. Conservatives show concern for property rights and the rights of business and industry, but tend to favor individual rights only when these do not conflict with dogmas usually derived from the religious right, like right to life, sexual mores, wars on drugs, and other items covered under a vague umbrella of Judeo-Christian family values. Needless to say, neither of these positions could satisfy my libertarian yearnings. I even discovered that there exists a movement, including a political party calling itself libertarian, but I found most persons attached to this label to be obsessed with economics, a subject which I consider to be at best but a partial consideration of the debate at hand, and that's true, uh, and that's because the solution's not going to come from economics or politics. The solution to this is spiritual. The solution to this is, is getting a handle on the fundamental Gnostic truth of who and what you really are. And I really like how he says, uh, with American, li American liberals are concerned with the freedom of the individual, but only when such freedoms fit in with their favorite fads of political correctness, multiculturalism, feminism, and environmentalism. And this is, is you know, Stefan Heller talking about cancel culture 15 years before it was a thing, at least, maybe 20 years before it was a thing. Um, uh, and with cancel culture, what you basically see is a trampling of individual rights and a trampling of the divine nature of the individual in the name of some word like equity, which again is a nice sounding thing, but has murderous shadows hiding behind it. Faced with such disillusionments, I decided to put forth some modest efforts of my own directed toward the advocacy of freedom. Within the context of these efforts, I availed myself of a certain matrix of psycho-spiritual thought to which I had been attached for much of my adult life. I am referring to the alternative spirituality of Western culture and its manifestations as Gnosticism, Hermeticism, Theosophy, and Jungian psychology. After having expounded some aspects of this spirituality in my lectures and books, I decided to investigate the social application of these teachings with a special view to their relevance to the issue of freedom. The chapters that follow are the results of this investigation. This book is very different from others I have written. Most of its chapters were delivered in lecture form and are not free from certain imperfections of style. The content, in turn, may be puzzling to many. Readers interested in Jungian psychology and an alternative spirituality tend towards views which are either apolitical or located on the left of the political spectrum. Most such persons were involved in the remarkable firmament of the 60s when spiritual interests were often conjoined with left-wing political activism. Not many are aware that C.G. Jung was a fierce opponent of Marxism and other totalitarian philosophies, and even fewer know of the savage persecution visited upon theosophical and kindred spiritual groups in communist countries. Liberal religious views often seem to go hand in hand with political liberalism, the later often amounting to some form of socialism. Yet, is it, yet it is important to remember that the word liberal is derived from the Latin libertas, meaning freedom. 
I ask my readers to consider that there is a vital relationship between non-mainstream spirituality and the issue of freedom. I ask for a hearing for a point of view which may not have been previously considered. This point of view always possessed merit, but is even more timely now when the Marxist experiment has proven itself to be a pitiful failure, not only in human terms, but in its political and economic dimensions as well. It is my hope that this book may initiate a reapproachment between libertarian thought and the community of alternative spirituality, including Jungian psychology. Stefan A. Heller, Hollywood, California, January 1992. And that's the preface. And he closes it by pointing out something very interesting. Totalitarian regimes always go after the esoteric. They always do. People, you know, <clears throat> there's a there's a whole history of occult literature about the the occult roots of the Third Reich and the Nazis' interests in occult things, and and there is a smattering of that there. They were definitely interested in symbols, and there were individual Nazis um, who were involved in occult groups, but the and they exploited occult groups to help themselves get into power. But the first one of the first things they did when they came to power was suppress. The Masonic lodges to suppress the Theosophical lodges um, to close down uh, the practice of the pagan religions, and the same thing happened um, under communism. Although communism never made common cause with the spiritual, it being a completely atheistic and materialistic philosophy. But one of the first things that communists do when they come to power is shut down the Masonic lodges, shut down the Theosophical lodges, and smash all expressions of esoteric philosophy. And I've been thinking about that lately. Why is that? Why is it that these totalitarian regimes go after the esoteric? And the answer is because the esoteric contains the antidote to these totalitarian regimes. And that antidote is the divine spark, the divine birthright, the eternal nature of the human being. The fact that we are created in the image of God, that we are sons and daughters of God, that we are beings of light that are here to fight darkness. And totalitarianism is the manifestation in our world of darkness. Something else that I've been thinking about and talking about and writing about lately and others have as well is more and more people kind of tuned into these things are, are beginning to think about the nature of evil a lot and beginning to kind of question these uh, modern spiritual views that there is no absolute good, there is no absolute evil, it's all, uh, you know, things that need to be processed and elevated or the shadow aspects of your mind and a lot of things that we call evil fit that category. They are shadow aspects of your mind, or there are things that need to be integrated into wholeness. But make no mistake, friends, there is evil. And as the hermetic dictum says, as above, so below, just like there are tyrannical forces in the world here in the physical world, there are tyrannical forces in the spiritual world as well. And they are having their heyday right now. They are manifesting more and more, and they are influencing world events. And we need to wake up to this. We need to get ourselves on the side of light, on the side of liberation, on the side of sovereignty and freedom. And this is the essence of the Gnostic Hermetic Rosicrucian urge. It's the, it's the, the heart 
of the esoteric Christian message. All right, so that's the preface to the book. I think next time we get together, we'll get into the introduction, which is called the Gnosis of Freedom. Uh, until then, I recommend you go out and get a copy of the book. Uh, you could find it on Amazon. You can find it from a used bookstore, I'm sure. I think I got my copy at alibris.com, which if you don't know about it, you can get used books in really, really good condition um, at, at very, very good prices. Uh, you might even be able to find a PDF of it online. I'm not sure, uh, but it's well worth the money. It's a, it's a vitally important book for anyone who is interested in Gnosticism and for anyone who is concerned about the political direction that things are going in the world today. And I just want to close on a note uh, that I, I think it's important to point out. You, you I, I, I don't want to come across as partisan in the sense of Republicans or Democrats, because I don't consider myself a partisan in that regard. My politics is esoteric. My politics is transcendental. Um, I don't see the, as Stefan Heller said in the book, there's nowhere on the political spectrum right now that shows a genuine interest in freedom. And I believe that. And, and I think that perhaps one of the things that, that those of us who are working on these things need to do eventually is move something in that direction. But it's not there now. So don't get caught up in the partisan fight of, oh, Trump's gone and hooray, now we have Biden. Or, oh, no, Trump's gone and now we have Biden. No, these people are all totalitarians, right? It's all archontic forces. Um, there's nothing to celebrate in the switch from one to the other. I, I really believe that. Perhaps there's little things, you know, you might have liked some things about Trump more than you like about Biden. You might like some things about Biden more than you like about Trump. I'm not saying that that stuff doesn't exist. But in the big picture, our country and our culture is, is heading to a place we don't want to go. And we need to figure out a way to right the ship. And the way to do that, I think, from the Gnostic perspective is to awaken, to awaken ourselves, to help our brothers and sisters wake up, to build community and family and friendship and culture that is based on that awakened viewpoint that recognizes that who and what we are are sons and daughters of the Most High. You're not a race. You're not a body. You're not a class. You're not a member of a tribe. All those things are there, and it's fine to have pride in all of those things, but who and what you truly are is beyond all of that, and that's what we're pointing to with Gnosticism and modern Gnosticism in particular. So I hope everyone enjoyed this. I really recommend uh, and request you to share this with people, whether you're watching it or listening to it. Uh, share it with people that you think might find it interesting. Share it on your social media pages, wherever you share information. Uh, and feel free to reach out to me, Brian Stanford on Facebook. You'll see my ugly mug in the picture and you'll know it's me. Um, I, I love connecting and communicating with people on social media. Uh, like most people, I think social media in certain ways is this horrible thing, but in another way, it allows us to make these connections across distances and time. And we need to take advantage. You know, we need to take advantage of the tools of the enemy in a, in a real sense. You know, this is spiritual guerrilla warfare. We, we, have to, we have to make use of, of what the enemy leaves lying around. 
So reach out to me on social media. You can find the Modern Gnostic Podcast page on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, and you can write to the email here on the YouTube channel to get in contact with me that way as well. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. I hope that you have a wonderful week. And a uh, little catchphrase that's coming into my mind over the last two weeks that I'm going to leave you with is resist the spirit of the times. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. As always, wherever you are listening or viewing, be sure to like the podcast, subscribe, and please share it with your friends. We want to get the word out about Modern Gnostic to as many people as possible. So share it with any friends, family, or co-workers you know that are seekers like you and I are. Uh, and if you don't know about it, we now have the Modern Gnostic YouTube channel where uh, we're making videos. Uh, those videos go on here as the audio podcast. And there's some old videos on there too from before I had an audio podcast. So go on over to YouTube, search Modern Gnostic, subscribe to the channel, and check out all the videos there. And stay tuned because we have more episodes in this esoteric patriotism series coming and our regularly scheduled modern Gnostic episodes. So as always, I wish you all the best. Hope you have a great week and continue to seek 